The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Morning, everybody. Okay, our scripture reading today is from Exodus 14, verses 15 to 29. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, What a story that is. And I pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would know uh, what you're trying to teach us about who you are, who Christ is, and what it means for us to walk in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, everybody. So, uh, as Joe said a minute ago, my name is Billy Cerverty, and when Russ asked me to preach this morning on Exodus 14, this story, this is like, in the, in the narrative arc of the Exodus story, this is kind of the 
big pivotal moment. I kind of, Russell, when you preach on this, I kind of cocked my head because this is the equivalent of when Luke Skywalker blew up the Death Star in Star Wars. Like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, sure. And uh, I love this, this story, but it's it, the parting of the Red Sea. And it's more than, than just this dramatic, climactic moment in this wonderful story, though it certainly is. If you notice, it's this event that becomes this paradigm of grace, this defining story. In fact, it's so much so that the Jewish people today and, and all the way up until this moment have pointed to that as the seminal narrative that explains who this God is that we serve. And we as Christians do the same. And the reason I love it, besides that it's just a good story, because it is, but there's so many common elements in this story that are common in every story of God's grace. And I want to unpack that today a little bit about what I see. And there's a, there's a few things up front I want to tell you is that this is a story that, that shows us that God holds a story we cannot see on our own. And he does that to reveal an identity we would not know on our own, to take us on a journey we would never choose on our own. When we point, we point to Exodus 14 so much, and one of the reasons we do that is because Exodus 14, the story of the parting of the Red Sea, points to so many other places in Scripture so often. And it is just rife with all this language that, that is uh, reminiscent of Genesis. And if you're an ancient Hebrew and you're reading this story, it's like a neon sign that's pointing, because it's got all this creation language, and it's pointing us to Genesis 1. You read it, and we'll, we'll walk through this a little bit. But here's a little pro tip. When you're reading anything in the Old Testament, and it's packed full of metaphors that's found in another story somewhere else, generally if it's before, go to that other story, because it'll tell you a lot about what you're reading here and the point it's trying to make. So I want to back up a little bit and uh, look at Genesis 1 and kind of what was going on there and what, what, what Moses, when he was writing this, was trying to, to tell the people. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit of God hovered over the chaos and he separated the earth from the water. He separated the light from the, from the darkness. And in the crescendo of this creation, he created man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he takes them and he puts them in this garden, this little designated spot in a, in a place called Eden, right? And he said he planted it in the east. And it's this small corner of the world. Now, Eden is pretty cool, and it's this unique place. It was where literally heaven and earth overlapped. It was where a spiritual and the earthly worlds came together. And that's not just metaphorical. That's actually literal. We see this where you read about God walking with Adam in the cool of the day. You also see that where there's this mysterious serpent figure that moves through the garden that we later learn is not just a snake, it's actually this, this spiritual being that we refer to as the Satan, and he corrupts Adam and Eve. So God gave Adam and Eve a, a job. He gives them two primary things to do. First thing is go be fruitful and multiply. What does that mean? It means go make more people. Go have some babies, which is awesome. And the second job he gives them, as wonderful as Eden is, and it is, the rest of the world while it hadn't been touched by sin yet, it hadn't been cultivated yet. 
So Eden had like boundaries and beyond that was the rest of the world. And God says to them, I want you to exercise dominion. And what he means by that, he goes, I want you to go out and I want you to cultivate the rest of the world. And I want you to make it like Eden. I want you to build the holy city of God. I want this to be a place that you nurture, that you protect so families can grow. We will see God's justice, his beauty, and his glory will flourish. It's pretty awesome. Well, you know the story. This, this uh, Satan, this serpent hated God. He hated his power. He was jealous of it, and he wanted to unravel his plan. So what does he do? He can't take on God. So he does the next best thing is he goes for Adam and Eve and he knows that if he can unravel them, it will, it will lay an ax to the root of what God's plan is for the world. So he deceived Eve and then he deceived Adam through her. Uh, sin entered the world by believing that they could be like God, that they could experience this divine purpose and life and all those things that only God can provide. And humanity fell and the world fell. So what happens? God pushes Adam and Eve out of the garden. And this spiritual realm of Satan and his host, they're put there, they move into the world. And fallen humanity in this fallen spiritual world begins to grow and multiply. And it gets more and more depraved. It leads to the flood and it leads to the Tower of Babel, right? So man, and the point of this is that man lost sight of the story. We couldn't see it, but God didn't. And he was holding on to the story we couldn't see. And he begins this story, he begins again of a journey of recreation. How does he do it? He, he, he steps in and he begins again with one man, with one woman and the promise of a baby. Abraham, Abram, Sarai, the promise of Isaac. And he says to them, I want you to be fruitful and multiply to bless the world. Sound familiar? Right. So Abraham has Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Joseph, Joseph goes to Egypt. The Hebrews come with him, his brothers and sisters, they begin to multiply. We leave the story. We jump back in to where we are now, 430 years later, and they're slaves. And they're crying out under the boot heel of Pharaoh. And they're suffering. And they don't know what's going on and they've lost sight of the larger story. But remember, God holds a story that they could not see and it's about to come crashing back in. You know, one of the interesting things that I, I love about, uh, that caught me when I was studying for this passage, have you ever noticed how kind of locked in on Pharaoh God seems to be? In fact, with the exception of King David, maybe King Saul, there's not another earthly ruler that gets more ink in scripture than Pharaoh. Isn't that peculiar? I, wonder, I wondered why that was, and I realized that why would God was God so uh, seemingly obsessed with showing his glory over Pharaoh? And what I see is this, is it's not that he was insecure about this man named Pharaoh, it's what Pharaoh represented. See, Pharaoh was the embodiment of human and spiritual rebellion together. In Egypt, his kingdom was the anti-Eden. It was the anti-Eden. It was the photographic negative of what God intended. 
Just as, as Eden was a place where the spiritual beauty of heaven and earth would overlap and where man made in the image of God would rule with goodness and with, to proclaim God's glory, Egypt was a place where these lesser spiritual beings overlapped and Pharaoh, who was a self-proclaimed deity, he said, I am the, made in the image of Ra, the sun god. And he ruled, but he ruled with oppression. And he crushed God's people. In Eden, you see, Adam and Eve were told to be fruitful and multiply, and they did. And in Egypt, Pharaoh saw that, and instead he went and slaughtered the male babies of all the Hebrews to try and destroy God's people. In Eden, Adam and Eve were set free to build the holy city of God. And in Egypt, they were enslaved. And Pharaoh used them to build monuments to, to him and to other gods. In Eden, it says that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And in Egypt, Pharaoh would sit from afar and watch and listen to the cries of these people he has enslaved in the heat of the desert wind. This is, this is a beautiful pivot point because this is where God, again, he holds the story that people have lost and he begins to step in. He hears the cry of his people. In the first breath of Exodus, we see that God is just flexing his sovereignty in these moments. He gets up there and you see that he's still in control of it all. And in the first show of his dominance over Pharaoh, when he's trying to wipe out the, the male Hebrews, not only does he save Moses, but he, you know how he saves Moses? He gets Pharaoh's family to do it. He gets Pharaoh's family to do it, and, he gets, and then he raises them on Pharaoh's nickel. Had Pharaoh sent him to college, University of Cairo, I'm sure that was expensive, Right? So Yahweh, he continues to move and he devastates Pharaoh. We, we talked about it last week. When he sends the 10 plagues, the killing of the firstborn. It's so bad for the Egyptians that after the Passover, the Egyptians didn't just let the Hebrews go. They paid them to leave. Did you know that? They paid them. In, in Exodus 12, it says that they gave them jewelry and gold and silver and weapons and food and clothing. So much so, it says that Israel plundered the Egyptians. Isn't that crazy? So the Lord, in this form of this pillar of, of a cloud, he leads them out. And it, it's this pillar of cloud becomes fire at night. And he leads them out of Egypt, 600,000 men and women, and it says children and cattle, and it's this huge entourage. And they're zigzagging through the desert. And when you read the story of them leaving in the beginning of, of, of Exodus 14, they take this weird, really circuitous route. They go up north, and they go down to the edge of the desert, and they go up to the edge of the, of the Red Sea. And if you imagine this, if you're Pharaoh and you're watching this because you know he is, and he's got his scouts there. Israel sets up their camp with their backs to the Red Sea, which is a terrible defensive position. And Pharaoh's watching this. You gotta keep in mind that in Egypt, the gods of Egypt, they were really fickle. They were on your side one day and they, were, uh, they would abandon you the next. And Pharaoh's watching them and said, what are these people doing? They are totally confused. They're totally lost. Their God has abandoned them. So Pharaoh thinks that this God that had brought all these plagues is let go. But what he doesn't realize is, is God's just luring them in. 
It's like you would dance a lure on the fish to make a look like a wounded fish to bring a fish in. That's what he's doing. And Pharaoh couldn't resist, so he hits the bait. And he hits it hard. Egypt was the most powerful military force in the world back in those days. In the world, this, the, our passage, uh, the entirety of 14, it mentions chariots 11 times. The chariot was the F-18 fighter jet of those days. And these were, these Hebrews, they had weapons, but they, because they were slaves, they were never allowed to own them. They were never allowed to train with them. So they probably looked like little kids playing dress up to Pharaoh. And he couldn't resist. So it says that he said, some commentators say that a thousand chariots were coming in with horsemen and soldiers, and they were barreling down on Egypt. Now you can imagine the terror of the Hebrews. God's holding the story. And Moses tells them to get ready as this pillar of cloud that's in front of them, that's been leading them, goes from in front of them by the sea and goes in between them and Pharaoh's army. And in the language that we begin to see of Genesis 1, the spirit of God separates the light from the darkness. Moses says, get ready, pack up your stuff. And he throws Pharaoh's army into darkness and a wall that they can't get to the Hebrews and the Hebrews are standing in the light. And God commands Moses to stretch his hand out over the sea. This Hebrew symbol of chaos and the spirit of God hovered and moved over the water in the form of an east wind. East, where God had planted Eden. And this east wind comes in, hovering over the water, sounding so familiar. And this story of recreation echoes the story of creation as the spirit of God separates the water into these two walls. And the word in Hebrew, in Hebrew is it implies a city wall, meaning this was a massive walls of water. And it divided it so the people could walk through on dry land and come out the other side. Now the pillar of God is there and of the cloud is blocking the Egyptians and it moves and they are incensed. And it says that they go in, the army follows them into the sea, and it says the wheels got clogged. Basically, God began to make the mud. And they get thrown into a panic, and God has hardened their hearts, and they're going, and all of a sudden, they realize there's this moment where they catch on, and they say, oh my gosh, here we are again. We just saw this. And God says to Moses, pull your hands out and bring the water back in. And he does, and in one note of poetic justice, the army belonging to Pharaoh, this guy who said he bragged about being the visible image of the sun god. Scripture says that Yahweh destroys his army just as the morning sun was beginning to appear. And in that one act, he restructures the human order and the cosmic order. See, God, he's holding this powerful story that that we can't see. And he's moving it forward to rekindle what he planned with Eden. But what makes this a story of, of grace is not just how much God is holding the story, but how much Israel is not. How lost they are. You have to remember, these Israelites, these weren't, good Jewish boys and girls that grew up going to temple. They'd been slaves for 430 years. For all intents and purposes, they were pagans. 
that were considering monotheism for the first time. They were considering this one God. And, and when they are staring down Pharaoh's armies with their backs to the Red Sea, I assure you they weren't sitting there saying, look at these poetic echoes of Genesis 1. Isn't it amazing that we'll be the paradigmatic example of God's salvation throughout redemptive history? No. They were in the moment, and they were terrified. But the beauty of it is this. God wasn't trying to teach them the specifics of the story, how it begins and how it ends. What God was doing was he was trying to teach them about the heart and character of the one that held the story for them. In the same way that we don't know how it ends, but the grind of our life, what the gospel does for us and teaches us over and over again is to reveal when we look at the cross and we look at the character of who this Jesus is, the heart of the one that holds the story for us so we can take the next step in faith so we can take the next step in courage that we know that it's being held by something good, something more powerful, something beautiful. See, he displays his power to Israel and he's showing them that I'm faithful. I'm strong and I'm not letting go. His displays of power were to tell them who he was. But his display of power is also to tell Israel who they were to reveal an identity that they could not see on their own. In the same way that Pharaoh's identity about his power and the way he moved and his purpose in the world was defined by his sense of deity that he got being made in the image of the sun god, even more so Israel, God's people were defined by their association with Yahweh. They stepped into the Red Sea as slaves, but they emerged on the other side a holy nation, they had no reference point for this. They were a people protected and led by him, called by him. They didn't have the benefit of the rest of scripture. They didn't even have the benefit of reading Genesis yet. And it changed their name and their sense of purpose. I read this story recently about this woman from West Virginia. Her name was Sarah Culbertson. And she's an African-American woman who was adopted by a Caucasian family when she was, was an infant. And she always been curious about her birth family, but she was probably until she was about 28 that she began to, to, uh, to look for her birth parents. And she hires a private investigator who finds out that her birth mother was, had died in West Virginia and her father was West African. And her father had moved overseas or back, back to West Africa, but that he still had family in Maryland, and he found the address, and she wrote this letter to this, the, her aunts and uncles that were uh, on her father's side. And about a week later, she gets, her phone rings. She's like, hello? And this thick African accent is on the other side and says, hello, Sarah. This is your auntie and your uncle. We are so happy you have been found. Do you know who you are? And she goes, uh, I'm Sarah. She says, yes, but no. You are part of a royal family. Your grandfather was a chief. Your uncle and your father are chiefs, and you can be a chief one day. You must know, 
in your country, you are considered a princess. She reaches out, reconnects with her father. And within a number of months, she's on an airplane, she flies and she lands in Sierra Leone to meet her father. And she gets off the plane and she's greeted with hundreds of tribal women that she has never met. And they are all dressed in the same garb and the same dress that she was wearing that had been sent to her. And they were singing, we are preparing for Sarah. We are preparing for Sarah. And she says, I hadn't won a basketball game. I was not just elected the prom queen. I just showed up and that was enough. She stepped into this glorious reality of who she was, and it was royalty. And she settled into this royal identity. And all of a sudden, there she began to face the royal implications. You see, Sierra Leone had been in a civil war for about 11 years. And so many of the children there were missing limbs and were, were orphaned, and there was so much illiteracy and poverty and just devastation And as she absorbed their love, she also began to feel her heart transform and she began to absorb their burden, her burden for that world. And now this woman, Sarah, spends her life doing relief work to bring health and recovery and repair to the people of Sierra Leone. All through the lens of that royalty she didn't know she possessed. Isn't that a beautiful story? You see, we live in a different part of the story than the Israelites, but it's one that echoes Genesis 1 as well. Because see, we lost sight of the story and God did not, and he began again with one man and one woman and the promise of one baby that we now know was Jesus. And on Mark 1, we realize this, or we read that this Jesus grows and he descends into the water at his baptism. And the sky separated, the heaven is torn in two. And the Greek word there that they use is the same word they use in the Septuagint to tell the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And Jesus, the spirit hovers over him and over the waters and says, you're my son with whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And like Israel, Jesus emerges from the water and he goes into the wilderness. First thing he does. And he lives a life, he dies on the cross, he's resurrected. And because of that, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as believers, and we walk in that truth, we hear this call in our hearts. It's a voice, like that phone call that Sarah got. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? I'm a screw up. I'm a failure. I'm so full of shame, I'm lost, I'm scared. No. In your country, your father is a king. You are a prince. You're a princess. You're an heir. Zephaniah, God rejoices over you with singing. We have prepared for you. We have prepared for you, not because you've won a basketball game, not because you're the prom queen and the prom king, but because Jesus descended into the water of judgment He defeated the serpent that wanted to unravel creation. He defeated Satan, his powers. He defeated Pharaoh. He defeated death. And because he stepped into those chaotic waters of judgment, we emerge on the other side as a new name, with a new name. 
but my life can seem so out of control. I don't know what I'm doing, my kids, my work, my marriage, my life, it's chaos. So much of this journey I wouldn't choose, of course. But you're not the one holding the story. And if you were, there was nothing you would choose differently. Because God is moving and works all things better, all things together for the good of those who love him. And for us, as we, we encounter that truth, we feel the seeds in our heart that were stirred, that were planted in Eden, that we absorb that love, we also absorb the burden. We are to love. In the same way Adam was to, to, to build the holy city of God, we are to build the kingdom of God. It's amazing how that language matches up. Where there is injustice, we bring mercy. Where there's, where there's pain and suffering, we bring love. Where they're hungry, we bring food. One of my favorite things when I read is in Revelation 21. It's my favorite passages in Scripture. We don't know the details of the story. We know the heart of the one who holds it. But we do know how it ends. Revelation 21 I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is the city that is coming. That is the city that Adam was supposed to have built. That is the city that God is preparing we have prepared for you. We have prepared for you, and it is the city that is coming that we will not have to wait for forever. Do you know who you are? Your father is a king. He holds a story. He's calling you to tell and spread the realities of Eden to the rest of the uncultivated world. How do you do that? You tell the story of what you've experienced and the way you've loved others, you tell it in the way that you speak into their lives. How do you keep doing it? You keep listening to that song that we just read in Revelation 21. We are preparing for you. We are preparing for you. And I am here. Jesus is Emmanuel. I'm with you now until the end of the age. Amen. Father, I thank you for the gift of your scripture. I thank you for the gift of your deliverance and the way that it plays out in so many different ways. I ask you, Lord, that you would continue to open the eyes of our heart as we prepare to take communion today. We thank you and ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.